Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. There's a lot going on in the country right now that actually is probably a dramatic understatement. (laughs) So it's National School Choice Week this week. The March for Life is tomorrow. President Biden has already taken more than 30 executive actions since being sworn in as president. And the Senate is preparing to begin Trump's impeachment trial. And that's like just to name a few things going on. (laughs) There's certainly a lot happening in D.C. and just across the whole country. And we want to highlight one of the positive things happening this week. Friday is the 48th annual March for Life. This year is the first time in history that the march is going virtual, but you can still participate. There are so many great speakers talking at the rally, including Representative Kat Kamek, favorite of the show, Lila Rose, the founder and president of Live Action, and former NFL player Ben Watson, just to name a few. And Tim Tebow will be speaking at the Rose Dinner at 7 p.m. on Friday night. You can get tickets for that at marchforlife.org. This is going to be a good week. There's a lot going on. It's going to be great, though, and we're excited to break down some of those things on today's show. So, Lauren, what do we have queued up? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Natasha Chart, the executive director of Women's Liberation Front, about President Biden's new executive order that provides a direct path for the end of women's sports by allowing transgender individuals to compete with women and use women's locker rooms and restrooms. Plus, we share a sneak peek of a new Heritage Foundation video, which highlights all the powerful conservative women serving in positions of power right now. We also listen to a portion of our colleague Rachel Del Judas's conversation with March for Life President Jeannie Mancini about what we can expect during the first ever virtual march. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. We are excited to welcome Natasha Chart, the Executive Director of the Women's Liberation Front, also referred to as WOLF. Natasha, welcome back to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me back. So you were last with us on October of 2019. The world is is very different now, but uh, one thing is the same, and it's great to have you back. Uh, Can you begin about sharing a little bit about your organization and your mission? Sure. Uh, Women's Liberation Front is a radical feminist organization, and we are dedicated to supporting the basic rights of all women and girls. And we formed largely in order to fight against the legal erasure of women in policy and statute. One of our first actions was to oppose the Obama administration's Dear Colleague letter that would have imposed a gender identity standard on all federally funded Title IX institutions. So you all have really dove in kind of headfirst into these issues. You're you're tackling 
a lot of of these bills and laws that come up um, that do, you know, remove sort of these women's only spaces from society. Uh, So let's talk about Biden's executive order that he just signed. It's called Executive Order on Preventing and Combating Discrimination on the Basis of Gender Identity or Sexual Orientation. So I want to point out that this order, it sounds really nice. I mean, the first sentence begins, every person should be treated with respect and dignity and should be able to live without fear no matter who they are or whom they love. Great. Okay, we can all get behind that. The second sentence it's a great is statement. where it yeah, right? It sounds nice. Like, yeah, okay, good. But for me, the the second sentence is where the bells start going off. Cause that reads, children should be able to learn without worrying about whether they will be denied access to restrooms, the locker room, or school sports. So that's a little troublesome. Natasha, can you go ahead and just kind of break down what exactly is actually being said in this executive order? Right. And as you say, that first statement sounds great. We want everybody to be treated with respect and dignity. And then, you know, when you get onto the second sentence, of course, we want all young people to be able to use appropriate facilities at school. We want young people with aptitude to be able to develop their their athletic talents. The problem is that the way that gender identity is interpreted in these laws, and the Biden executive order makes that very clear with their invocation of the the Bostock decision, they ruled essentially that they recognized that Amy Stevens, and it was consolidated under, uh, it's now called the Bostock decision because of one of the other plaintiffs, but Amy Stevens was a trans-identified male who wanted to show up at work at the funeral home where he worked at, he wanted to identify as a woman. And that meant that he wanted to follow the women's policies for dress code and facilities access. And his employer was not comfortable with that and fired him. And he sued. And the Supreme Court decided that this was discrimination because Stevens was male, but wanted to identify as a female. And so he should have been treated like other female employees. So they weren't saying that it was wrong not to let him dress like a woman because it was wrong to have different dress codes for men and women. But on the basis of some undefined transgender status was the term that they used. Stevens had the right to say that everybody else, even though they knew he was male, even though the Supreme Court and all the court documents every filing at every level of what became that Supreme Court case, recognized that Stevens was male, but said that he had the right to be treated like a woman on his say-so. So if you claim this special transgender status, if you say you have a gender identity, what they're saying is that you then have the right, not to the rights and spaces for other people of your own sex, but for the right of the sex that you claim you are, even though everybody knows that you aren't. So then how does this new order from Biden, this executive order, kind of keeping that Supreme Court case in mind, how does this order kind of take that ruling and now push it in to things like women's sports, girls' locker rooms? Like, What's the implication specifically for schools and young people? Right. 
Well, so there aren't any schools that we've ever heard of that tell children, well, because you say that you have a gender identity, you can't use the bathroom at school. You can't play sports at school. No one, as far as we know, is being told that. What they're saying is, you know, you say that you have a gender identity as a girl, but you're a boy, you have to use the boys' facilities. If you want to play, you have to play on the boys' team. What this order does is it says they have to be allowed to choose based on gender identity. That's how the Bostock reasoning is going to be applied to this. That's how other observers, like at the ACLU, basically everybody expects it to be applied. And they call it a ban, but it's it's just not a ban. None of none of these boys who identify as girls were ever banned from competing with other boys. None of these girls who identify as boys were banned from competing with the other girls. They were not forbidden. They had to follow the same rules as everybody else. And now they're saying, well, you get to where sex matters in terms of facilities access or sports access. You get to pick the sex that everybody else treats you as and that everybody else has to call you and acknowledge. So on top of my role hosting the podcast, I'm also a video producer here at The Daily Signal. And one of the most popular documentaries we've ever put together, um, it, it was done by a former colleague and friend, Kelsey Bowler, and it's on uh, Selena Soul Story. And she's a, a track athlete from Connecticut who was very successful, but then boys who identified as women came into her sport and knocked her down a couple places. And, you know, that's huge for her when it comes to finding college scholarships. I mean, is this just one case or is this more widespread throughout the country? Well, this hasn't been going on for very long. So the number of people taking advantage of it is somewhat low at present. But I think these two boys claiming to be girls in Connecticut, high school athletics took a collected, I think it was 15 trophies, 15 Mm. podium spots from girls in various competitions. Because if you look at, if you look at the the overall statistics and you don't, you don't need to have any kind of fancy math knowledge for it. There are hundreds of men and boys every year, every year who easily outcompete the women's all-time track stars. The the performance difference is that vast. Like even, you know, they don't have to be world-class male athletes to out-compete women in something like track especially, or to be able to, was it one of the the Australian rugby players? Uh, I think they were talking about how he folded a woman like a deck chair. Mm. that he because being allowed to play rugby which is a very intense contact sport and the world rugby association has ruled just on the basis of safety that it cannot allow trans identified male athletes to compete with women because it's too much of a risk to the women's safety even just in terms of like neck injuries like mm-hmm. just on that basis alone they're saying we can't even having fairly evaluated the evidence, we can't get past this concern for athlete safety. 
one girl with a permanent neck injury, is that enough? One girl who loses a, a college scholarship? Is, I mean, how many? Mm. The question when you talk about how many, it's like how many girls have to get hurt, have to lose out, have to be alarmed that they're having to say change for swim team and there's boys in their locker room and they can't do anything about it. How many girls and women have to suffer before someone cares? Yeah. I mean, put a number on that. Like it, so it sounds like a horrible exercise and it is. Yeah, that's a sobering question because um, I think that that is the question, Natasha, is at, at what point are government leaders going to wake up and realize, oh, wait a second, logic was thrown out the window. Let's get that back in here. Well, I mean, all of the staffers, I'm willing to bet, have probably not talked to anyone for about four or five years who was not afraid of having a Twitter mob riled up against them online for questioning any aspect of this. The whole left side of politics in the U.S., such as it is, has just been, they're in an information bubble on this. You cannot talk about it. You will be called the absolute worst names, the most extreme things. You'll be blacklisted. So Natasha, how far reaching is this executive order? I mean, now can any student at any high school across the country say, hey, I'm transgender and now I want to compete on the women's sports teams or now I want to shower in the women's locker room? I mean, do all schools have to abide by this now? Well, if someone wants to have a fight with the DOJ, I guess they can say whatever they want. But the executive order was written very cleverly in that it only directly impacts the federal workforce, who, of course, you know, can't really complain about their boss all that much. Um, but then it directs all the agencies to apply this reasoning to all of their policies and all of their decisions. And so there's dozens of federal agencies. They're going to have to do a policy review on all of this. And it's possible that they could even come back and say, uh, our policies are fine. We don't have to do anything. But realistically, what's almost certain to happen is that they're going to go through and make policies like this, where gender identity can override sex, a condition of federal funding. So all over the country, men are allowed to identify into staying at women's shelters, like single, what are supposed to be single sex homeless shelters or domestic violence shelters or other kind of crisis services for women, where often you have sort of, I mean, you know, these places aren't rolling in the dough. Often it's communal living spaces, shared restroom facilities, you know, rooms that have like racks of bunks in them. Um, the Obama administration got that in place, not with a law. They didn't need a law. They just had to say that federal funding was conditional on adopting a gender identity inclusion policy, which meant you have to take someone's word about their gender identity. And there's no objective standard for this. It, it's, it's purely a claim of self-identification. You have to take someone at their word or you can be liable for a civil rights action. And so any school district who wants to go against this standard applied to student facilities use or student athletic participation is going to have to think about whether they want to spend the next several years fighting with the Department of Education Civil Rights Office. 
And that's an expensive proposition that honestly, you know, most school districts, most people who wants to fight with the DOJ, nobody wants that. So it does a lot without like explicitly saying you, you must do X, Y, Z. So, you know, this was a, a day one policy for now President Joe Biden. I mean, what is the damage that this could do if, if it's not rescinded over the next four years? Most of the brunt of it is going to be borne by women. And it's exactly the same kind of harassment and loss of opportunity that women have generally faced with very little pushback. So I don't know. I, there, was, there was a young woman who, like I, I referenced, there was a specific young woman who had to, to change for swim team several times a day in the gym. And there was a trans-identified male student who fought the school board and got them to, you know, have a gender identity inclusion policy. And was very, you know, the ACLU helped, of course, and he was very excited that he was going to be validated in his gender identity. And this girl, you know, was talking on the news in tears, talking about how often she has to change and she doesn't want to change in front of a boy. So that's already happened. So we can assume that that is going to happen at a whole bunch of schools all across the country. Who knows how many? And we're never going to know the scope of it because under these policies, if that girl complains, it's not reported as a problem for her. She is reported as the problem. She is violating somebody else's civil rights to use their lawful facilities. So we are not ever going to know, I think, how many young girls, young women are going to be upset by these policies, are going to feel like they can't change without a boy watching them, are going to feel like they can't change without having to watch a boy get undressed. I mean, what's, <laughs> yeah. what's the cost of that? What's the scope of it? Um, it it's. Again, it's exactly the kinds of things that women have always had to put up with that get treated like it's nothing. How did we get here? I mean, it feels like we arrived here pretty quickly. I mean, I think back to just five years ago, and you didn't really have many people talking about the transgender movement or gender identity, but it also doesn't seem random. Like, you know, we've we've gotten here uh, quickly, but it also it seems like it's been rather like the one thing after another that has moved quickly. You can you just explain a little bit about how we have arrived at this place and what has led, you know, our leaders in all sorts of positions of government to go to this extreme so quickly? Well, a few years ago, I can't say exactly when, but around the time when I was working in the progressive nonprofit world. So before 2015, um, it, this cause became very popular with donors on the left and they started making compliance with gender identity ideology, a condition of grant funding. And there started to be a lot of money for it. And so it really got, it really got its hooks into all of that, you know, grassroots activists, 
grass tops change maker policy apparatus, you know, not explicitly the political party per se, but, you know, all of the nonprofits and think tanks, um, all, all of the little groups that sort of support um, an ideology or a set of ideas. And there, there was very effective use of social media as it, you know, as these, these groups coalesce their influence and as people started treating this as a standard within progressive organizing circles of you have to agree with this or you're a bad person. And that just gradually became, no one really stood up against it because all the people who'd quietly made a stand about it got fired like me. So it just, you know, like any other idea can take hold when you, when you don't hear it, when you don't hear it opposed, when you don't hear it critically examined, when you understand that your job may be at stake on some level, you understand there's serious economic consequences for opposing it. You don't really want to. You don't really want to look. Is this is this really my business? Is this really what I came into politics for? It's easy to tell yourself that this does not affect you and you're just going to go along. And so a lot of people haven't even looked into the issue. They just see that it is like this fraught, emotional train wreck that starts Twitter mobs and costs people their jobs. And so I think they just, by and large, either they really support it or tend not to look too closely. But it's it's just become a, a toxic mess in, in our current social media dynamics. And of course, you know, the social media companies are reinforcing this because of, you can lose your Twitter account. You can get your Facebook account suspended. You know, if you're a journalist, if you're someone who works with public opinion, significantly losing your Twitter account is a huge blow. You know, for most people, like your Facebook account is also how you keep in touch with friends and family, right? So you don't want to lose that. You know, you're not going to see the pictures of the, the grandkids, your grandparents or whatever. These are important services to people. And it's just been this, this steady pile on of approval without critical thought that people think it's about being nice. People think it's about, oh, you know, here's this new category of person that we have not treated with dignity previously. We're going to all try to do better this time. We didn't do so great on, say, gay rights last time. We'll do better this time. And everybody wants to be the perfect ally and they really want to be good people. And so what happens is they end up sleepwalking down this path where they really want to be good people until Jazz Jennings is getting sterilized on air as a 17-year-old boy. And everybody thinks, oh, well, what nice family entertainment that is. Biden puts out a rule saying that, you know, gender identity policies have to apply to the military now. And on the one hand, you know, there's Democrats in the Senate insisting that, like, the military do something about sexual assault really sincerely, I think. And then with the other hand, they are supporting male service members being able to identify their way into using the women's showers. So <laughs> I, the, the conditions have been set in motion for a, a total lack of critical thought.
and analysis. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, we don't even have time in this interview to even get on into the rapid onset gender dysphoria, uh, you know, plague that is, is just going through young women in our society. Uh, but Natasha, I, I want to talk about solutions. You know, tomorrow, right. you're, you're president. How can we fix this issue? People have to be willing to speak honestly about this and to use accurate language about it. You can't call men women. You just can't do it because that's the whole battle. When you decide that you are going to promote knowing falsehoods like that, you're just negotiating the terms of surrender. It's important to say clearly, most people I think don't believe that anything this ridiculous could happen. Like they're not really going to let boys compete on the girls sports teams, are they? They're not really going to sterilize these children just because they have different interests or they, they dress a little different from their peers, but yes, they really are. And so people need to, wherever they can be bolder, speak out more accurately about this and, and understand the urgency of the situation, the urgency to act, to organize, to find groups to work with who are organizing against this and to make clear to your senators, to your congressmen, to your local officials, because they're passing these policies in, you know, at the local city council level, as, as well as its state government, make clear to your officials that the law has to accurately recognize sex. We don't want to like run people out of town because they have a belief about gender identity. They can believe what they want and that's fine, but the, the law and these very important policies have to reflect material reality. Tell us a little bit about the action that the Women's Liberation Front is taking, as well as what media coverage are you all getting uh, as you kind of move forward to push back ag against this agenda? Right. Well, uh, you can find our uh, our current action, which allows people to write a letter to President Biden in opposition of these ex executive orders. We have a simple form, made it easy for you. Uh, you can find it pinned uh, at the top of our Twitter feed, Women's Lib Front on Twitter and womensliberationfront.org on the web. Uh, it'll be easy to find the action and send President Biden a letter and just let him know that you support women's sex-based rights. Well, Natasha, for the last question, I, I do want to highlight that you are a, not a conservative, uh, but you work with groups like the Heritage Foundation, a type of, of unity that I think is really admirable and not seen very often uh, nowadays. How does this affect your personal life, your organization, and why do you choose and continue to choose to keep these coalitions? Well, I mean, just just opposing the the idea of gender identity, um, I think already probably cost me, you know, like ten years of career networking and a whole lot of friends. <laughs> about as many it was as it was ever going to. But in our view, this is an emergency. We know parents are losing custody of their children for failing to affirm a gender identity. We know that minors are being sterilized. We know that girls and young women are losing out on athletic and college scholarship opportunities. 
We know that women in domestic violence shelters, in homeless shelters, in prisons are being terrorized by men who've been allowed to identify as women and by officials who say, hey, it's out of our hands. He says he's a woman. He has to bunk with you. And we think this is an emergency and we would hope that everyone in politics would support women's side in this. And we thank everybody that has for stepping up and doing the right thing. Well, Natasha, we want to thank you so much for the work that you all are doing. And we encourage all of our listeners to follow that work at Women's Liberation Front on Twitter. And that's at Women's Lib Front is their handle. Natasha, thank you again for your time today. We just so appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much, Virginia and Lauren. It's a pleasure talking to you again. Bye-bye. Now stay tuned because up next, we listen to a portion of Rachel Del Judas's recent interview with March for Life president, Jeannie Mancini. But first, I want to tell you all about a great way to stay on top of the news and the policy debates that you actually care about. So if you're anything like me, you probably spend a bit of time on YouTube every week, either researching a topic or just looking for something entertaining to watch. So if that's you, then you have to subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel. The channel offers quick policy explainer videos, documentaries, entertaining clips from podcast interviews, and so much more. So go ahead and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel today so you can stay informed and never miss out on the news that you care about. Our colleague Rachel Del Judas recently spoke with March for Life President Jeannie Mancini on the Daily Signal podcast. Mancini explains why this year's March was moved to virtual and how you can still be involved. Let's take a listen. So to dive right in, uh, something that has been on my mind, and I'm sure the minds of so many pro-life warriors, uh, is the fact that the March for Life will be virtual this year. Can you start off by talking about why you chose to cancel the in-person march? Yeah, and we didn't actually cancel it. It just looks a little bit different this year. So there will be a march. This is the 48th annual march, and we we have to march again. I mean, again, we've done this for 47 years. Uh, This is the single most significant human rights abuse of our day. It's just that there will be less people. There will be a number of pro-life leaders, including some from Heritage, um, who will represent other marchers. Why did we do it? To tell you the truth, it wasn't something that we ever anticipated doing. Uh, But those of us who live outside of D.C. right now know that D.C. is a little bit in an unusual situation. Um, I would describe it as similar to a war zone. Uh, I was downtown twice, two weeks ago, not at all last week, Um, but just seeing the fencing up the number of National Guard we know that some have left over the weekend, but to a week last week at this time, there were over 25,000 National Armed Guards. Um, across from the March for Life, there were something like 30 guards. Uh, and so anyways, all to say that in addition to the COVID pandemic, um, to some of what we've seen in, in recent weeks with some very sad violence and the political tinderbox that DC is right now, it it just became very obvious to our board, and I'm part of the board, that we needed to consider marchers' safety and place that at the forefront and make a decision so that this year's march would look a little bit different. Well, I'm sure it probably was a hard decision to make, as you mentioned, that 
this, you know, is the first time it'll be canceled in the 47 year history. Can you tell people about how the virtual March for Life is working and how they can participate? Right. And and it was, I would say, as far as a board, uh, it was the single most difficult decision we've made in certainly in the eight and a half years that I've been uh, working with the March for Life. It, it was the most difficult and, and painful and painstaking decision that we've made. But we really just tried to do the right thing, knowing that whatever we did, we'd get a lot of um, pushback on it. But what will the, the virtual rally and the smaller march look like this year? Again, it's it's not canceled. It just looks different. The virtual rally is going to be fantastic. So our lineup won't change at all. And we have a really stellar, stellar lineup, in my humble opinion, this year. So that will be at noon. Um, and check us out at marchforlife.org to get the live stream of that. So that will be this Friday, January 29th. Um, as scheduled at noon, and that will be about an hour long. And then starting at one o'clock, you can also watch at marchforlife.org or at EWTN. You can watch the march happen with the smaller leaders, and that will also be about an hour long. Um, so, and I believe that will be a very powerful march to participate in, you know, whether that's virtually or for those of us who will be marching, I believe it will be a very somber and somewhat symbolic march. Well, the March for Life is such a unifying event, and I can say that uh, with authority since I've been going uh, since I was 12. Uh, But given the inauguration of President Joe Biden last week, who really has been outspokenly pro-abortion throughout his political career, how would you encourage pro-lifers to remain united in their efforts despite the agenda of the new administration with the latest administration talking about codifying Roe v. Wade uh, in a statement that they released on Friday. Yeah. And so it's thank you for using that language unity, because I think it's so important. And long before the election happened this year, we had decided the March for Life theme for the year, which is Together Strong Life Unites. And each year when we choose a March for Life theme, we try to consider what is the most pressing need in building a culture of life. And so themes in the past have included uh, examples um, would be uh, pro-life is pro-science, unique from day one, pro-life is pro-science. So talking about how life begins at the moment of fertilization and how we can know that scientifically. One of my favorite themes goes back in 2014 was um, adoption, a noble decision, really trying to show how a mother who chooses to be a birth mother instead of choosing abortion is doing a heroic and sacrificial and noble thing. And so we've had all sorts of, I believe, really beautiful and strong and educational themes. And so this year it's no less. And you mentioned, of course, the Biden administration in their first announcement on Friday about codifying Roe. And I would just say that it's more important than ever that we unite Uh, You know, we might do things differently in terms of pro-life organizations or personalities or what have you, but we're so much stronger when we have that diversity together. Um, There's a great quote from Mother Teresa. You can do what I cannot do. I can do what you cannot do, but together we can do great things. And so it seems to me like the way that we will uh, win this culture battle that we will make abortion unthinkable is that we can put differences aside and maybe even celebrate differences and lock arms and be very strong on just the bottom line issue that abortion should be unthinkable. 
So again, the march starts at noon tomorrow. You can go to marchforlife.org to watch the rally and the march of uh, the small group of pro-life leaders who are going to actually be in D.C. participating physically in that march. Before we crown our problematic woman of the week, though, you all may remember that Lauren mentioned a couple of weeks ago that she's been working on a video called 2021, the Year of the Woman. And today, you all get a sneak peek of this video. Lauren, can you tell us just a little bit about why you decided to make the video? What inspired you? It actually was a op-ed that Jessica Anderson wrote, and I just read it, and I was like, yes, this is everything we talk about on Problematic Women, and this it's just such a, a great way to say how I feel, and you know, with everything crazy going on this year, something that I'm really looking forward to. So I, I reached out to Jess's team and I said, can I make this into a video? And they were like, oh my gosh, yes, please. So very excited working with some really great, it's actually all women just happen to be within Heritage to put it out. And really, I know folks are just going to hear the audio right now, but uh, clean animation just really highlights women that I, I look up to. And I know so many other women across the country look up to. So very excited for this product. And it really is a sneak peek. We're working hard on it and probably release early next week. Awesome. Okay, roll that clip. 2021 is the year of the woman. For real this time. Amy Coney Barrett is the first ever female originalist justice to sit on the Supreme Court. A record number of conservative women were just elected to Congress. When we look at the lives and the views of these women, the false narrative of modern feminism is exposed. For decades, modern feminists have only celebrated one type of woman. She is liberal and pro-choice. Look no further than the contrast between the media's praise for Senator Kamala Harris's vice presidential nomination versus their response to Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court appointment. Harris was lauded for shattering the glass ceiling and making little girls' dreams come true. Barrett was smeared and turned into a caricature. But conservative women are ready to reclaim feminism for what its founders intended. No more shall we choose between independence and motherhood. It is time for real feminism led by conservative women. It's not just Barrett. Senators Marsha Blackburn, Joni Ernst, and now over a dozen new Republican women in the House serve as new role models. These women prove you can have a career and a family. They prove you don't have to be a radical to be empowered. And they are fulfilling the dream of the original suffragettes. They wanted legal rights and equal treatment under the law, exactly what our founding fathers fought for. However, if you told these original suffragettes about today's feminist movement and its focus on abortion, radical libertinism, and the destruction of tradition, they likely would have been horrified. Real feminists reject today's narrow version and affirms its founders' values. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal. Real feminists empower women to make decisions best for themselves and their families. Real feminists make feminism work for all women. I, for one, am glad in 2021 we are returning to real feminism. Oh, I get so pumped listening to that. I got to watch a clip of it the other day. Like Lauren said, it looks so clean. It's tight. It just gets me so excited for all of these powerful women who are doing amazing things in Washington, D.C. and all over the country. 
Lauren, where can we find the video when it comes out? It will be on all of our social platforms. I will 100% tweet it. The Heritage Foundation, Facebook, Instagram. I I just really want to get it out to the whole world. Amazing. So excited for that. And just another reason why you should sign up for both the Daily Signal and the Heritage Foundation YouTube channels. Be sure to subscribe to those. So much good content there. All right. Now stay tuned because up next, we will be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week, who happens to be one of my very favorite problematic women. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. Now it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. On Monday, Governor Kristi Noem introduced legislation in her state that would ban abortion of babies diagnosed with Down syndrome. In a statement on her website, Governor Noem writes, quote, the Declaration of Independence summarizes what we all know in our hearts to be true. God created each of us and endowed all of us with the right to life. This is true for everyone, including those with an extra chromosome. It is estimated that two out of every three Down syndrome pregnancies result in abortion in America. And honestly, that's low compared to a lot of Western countries. So it's really great to see Governor Nome taking a stand for the sanctity of life in her state. It certainly is. I mean, she is being so bold. And, you know, I think when we think about just the priorities that we hold as Americans about the the values that we have, uh, you know, that really begins with life and that begins with protecting life. I joke with my family all the time that I might just move to South Dakota <laughs> one day if the country keeps becoming like more and more progressive because Nome is a governor who holds that line. She really is strong on like, okay, wait a second. Nope, we're not going to go down this far left path and we're going to keep promoting those values that are so dear to Americans. So congratulations to Governor Nome. And she's just such a cool lady. I tell everybody the story about when we interviewed her at the Turning Point (laughs) Conference last year. Uh, It was our first interview. There happened to be a lot more security than the day before. So we were running late and we show up and, you know, I I rush in and there's, you know, a woman standing in front of our booth and I don't think anything of it. I I start setting up and and somebody comes up to me and is like, aren't you guys going to interview the the governor of South Dakota? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In my head, I was just assuming some like old dude is going to roll up. And the lady was like, no, she's right there. And I'm like, (laughs) and I look over and it's just like this like beautiful woman in like a a green jean jacket, just standing there nice talking to folks. And I was like, you're telling me that's the governor of South Dakota? And she was so gracious, like so kind to everyone that she met, Um, you know, wanted to take photos with all of us, just 
the coolest lady, you know, that you could ever meet. But yeah, I just, I always remember. <laughs> oh, oh, that, I, that's I, her. Yep. I remember that so clearly. She had cowboy boots on and she was so incredibly gracious. Cause I think it, I think Trump was speaking at Turning Point that day. And so security yeah, was way tighter. We were running late and still she was so kind. I was like, out of breath when I actually got in there because I was running and she was so kind. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Governor Nome. <laughs> well, Virginia, I think that's a great place to leave it. And that'll be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.